mentioned in the church where all together the church has come together and done it like an extended meditation on, on Good Friday as a way to prepare our hearts for Easter. And so um, we think it's a good idea. It's, a, it's, a, it's a something that we can like join in the church, you know, the universal church with together as we prepare our hearts for Easter by focusing on uh, you know, our state and, and the trouble that we have and why Good Friday was necessary to make Easter even all the more special. So what we, when we celebrate Lent, what we mean is we're going to take a season and we are going to extendedly, we're going to meditate on all those things. And one of the best ways to do that is by looking at one of the minor prophets of Israel, because that was what they were all about. Israel had been exiled out of the promised land. They had been brought back. Uh, and they had just gone through a ton of trouble. And the minor prophets really speak to not only the sins of Israel, but the coming hope of the Messiah. And so we're, that's what we're doing for our, our Lent season. And today we're going to start with the prophet Malachi. In Malachi's day, when he wrote to Israel, the problems they used to struggle with were not the problems they struggled with at that time, it used to be real. It used to be gross idolatry. Israel had just abandoned God to follow all other kinds of gods. But in 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 Malachi's day, it was totally different. They had they were worshiping the one true God, but there had been all these promises that God had made to them about the restoration of Israel, about the coming of Messiah. And as the years dragged on, it became harder and harder to believe that those promises were ever going to get fulfilled, as they were just under the pressure of everyday life. And so there's a lot of similarities that we have with that time. We've been waiting 2,000 years now. Sometimes it can feel like it's grinding on with no end in sight. And so we have a lot to learn from Malachi and what happened to the people of God in that time. But mostly I want to look at this because as we study and look at the stagnation uh, and the doubt that they fell into, um, we'll be able to contrast that and see what a vibrant and living faith might look for us today. And so that's my hope as we go through this book. We're going to be studying that for the next six weeks. So, so if you would please stand uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word, we'll start with Malachi chapter 1, 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. And yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may, re they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us through this book, through this passage today. Lord, the one thing that you want us to remember above all other things is your love for us, that we are the beloved in Jesus. That's the foundation. That's the baseline. That is ground zero for everything else that you talk to us about, that you, that you speak to us about in your word. 
Uh, and what a beautiful blessing it is that you start off this book of, of discipline and chastisement laying out this principle right up front. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what you mean when you say, Jacob, you have loved, Esau, you have, ha you have hated, uh, so that a clear picture of the beauty of Jesus might emerge from that, and so that we might see you as you truly are, uh, and being in awe of your beauty, we might worship you and trust in you all the more and be drawn towards you, Lord. So we pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds, give us minds to understand, and give us hearts to obey as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> we had a, one, of our, the old, our, the, one of our professors at the time in seminary, but now it's the president of the seminary, Joel Kim. The most entertaining parts of his classes were where he would um, tell embarrassing stories about his kids. And so now, as a preacher... Preaching is kind of hard work for me, but one of, the, one of the few perks is that I get to tell embarrassing stories about my kids. Unfortunately, they're not even here today to enjoy this, but you are. So make sure next week to remind Hannah of, Hannah of this story. I'm going to tell you the story of the great Slurpee insurrection. This was not so long ago, but Hannah had a friend over. Hannah, our daughter Hannah, her best friend is named Hannah. <laughs> Spelled exactly the same, right? And so I, I just kind of, I call them the Hannahs. Sometimes the Hannahs, depending, trying to respect her friend, right? But anyways, her friend had come over to hang out and play, and they, we had promised that we were going to take them to get Slurpees on their way home, right? But they couldn't wait. They could not wait for that Slurpee. They wanted it right now. And so they started coming into my room as I was trying to work, and they were bugging me, saying, Rob, we're saying, Dad, not Rob. Sometimes she's... They do, don't they? Don't your kids sometimes? Hannah's like, Rob? <laughs> she comes in, she's like, take us to get Slurpees now. And I'm like, I'm like, baby, we're going to take you in, in a couple hours. So she and, her, and Hannah went and made signs. They made like picket protest signs. Like, we want Slurpees, we want them now. And they came like parading through my room, chanting like protest slogans. What, what, what do we want? Slurpees. What do we want it now? What, and I'm trying to work. I'm trying to get the sermon done. This is a Saturday. They did everything in their power to like manipulate me into doing this. And after all the sound and fury had died away in their frustration and tears and theatrics, Hannah finally threw herself down on the bed and she was like, you don't love me. <laughs> if you loved me, you would take me to get a Slurpee right now. Fake tears, fake tears, fake tears. You all know what I'm talking about. You have kids. <laughs> and we were going to go in an hour, right? Um, but I get it, right? I get it on a big scale. I totally get it. She, what did she understand? As a 10-year-old, she knew what? She really wanted a Slurpee. She really wanted it now. And she knew that I had the power to give her that Slurpee right now, but I wasn't. What could that possibly mean other than I didn't love her. I totally get it. You know why I totally get it? I totally get it because that's how I treat God. Can I get an amen? <laughs> uh, you know, kids, any kids that are still here, that's, that's how grown-ups act too sometimes, which is funny, right? We, 
get it in our minds, things that we want, things that we think define God's love for us. We demand that he gives those to us now. And when he doesn't come through on what we think his love looks like, we start getting angry and frustrated and all sort of tearful theatrics come into play as we cry out to God, you must not love us. Because if you did, you would give us what we want when we want it. Uh, and not only do we act like that, but Israel acted like that. And that's how they're acting right now. And what God told them and what God is telling us is that his love is not so much measured by momentary comfort as it is measured by eternal relationships and by eternal destinies. That's how God calls us to remember and measure his love for us when we fall into doubt, when we fall into uh, our own versions of the Slurpee insurrection when we're facing God. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Basically two parts. First, God's love is not measured to us by his providing us with every momentary comfort. But his love is measured to us by eternal relationships and destinies. So let's look at the first part. God's love is not measured by momentary comforts. I am, I'm a little bit, maybe you're all as dismayed as I am at the resurgence of the Karate Kid. I mean, it was a bad movie back in the day. And I, from, I haven't seen any of it, but from my, what I hear, it's worse now, right? But I remember, it, it's, it, was, it was bad, but it became like a cultural icon and, and like cultural proverbs came out of that movie so that pretty much everybody knows the story, right? Daniel-san has got some big problems. There are some, he has some enemies that are looking to kill him and he uh, doesn't know what to do. So what does he do? He goes to Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi gives him big promises. I'm going to teach you karate. You'll be able to defend yourself and defeat all of your enemies. And so he goes to Mr. Miyagi to, to, to train under him. And what happens, right? Mr. Miyagi has him do all the housework. He's waxing the car. This is, here's the cultural proverbs. Wax on wax off. Everybody knows what that means. Paint the fence, right? And as he goes on and on and on, like doing all of his chores, waxing on the car, painting the fence, Daniel starts to think that he's been tricked. He starts to think, Mr. Miyagi could be training me in karate, but he's not. Instead, he's just having me go through all of these motions doing all of his dirty work, just going through these motions that don't mean anything. And he got discouraged, he got disgruntled, and finally he lost faith that Mr. Miyagi was going to come through on his promises. And that's almost a perfect picture of Israel at this time because Israel had big problems. Israel had at once, one time been the, the superpower of the ancient Near East, and they were diminished. Then God kicked them out of their land. They were exiled to a foreign power. They'd finally managed to come back. But when they came back, only about 150,000 people came back. And God promised that the temple would be rebuilt. But when the temple was rebuilt, it was smaller than the old one. And the old people that remembered the old temple literally wept on the day that it was, that it was, that it was laid, laid down. And not only that, when the temple was being built, not, you know, 80 years prior to this time, the prophets 
were promising, making all these big promises of God's restoration, that God would restore Israel, that Israel would expand uh, to, um, to cover the entire earth, that foreign kings would be coming and giving glory to and worshiping Israel's God. And he promised the Messiah, the, there would be a, the Messiah would come and set everything right. And as things went on and on, they had these big promises. At first, everybody was all excited, and God gave them the temple worship. But after time went on, after 80 years, it just started to feel like they're going through the motions. Offer up the goat, offer up the ox. Offer up the goat, offer up the ox. Wave the wheat, pour out the wine, wave the wheat, pour out the wine. And they started just going through the motions. Things got dry. The promises weren't coming through. It didn't seem very exciting. And Israel became discouraged and began to distrust God. Not to the point where they gave up the worship of God, but just to the point where they kind of checked out and just went through the motions, doubting whether or not God was really going to come through on his promises. And as it became less and less meaningful to them, they began looking for meaning and, and, and other things. And so when God comes to them at the very beginning of this book and he says, I have loved you, you can almost hear the angry, frustrated teenager in their voice when they respond, how have you loved us? You haven't loved us. If you loved us, you would give us what we want when we wanted. If you loved us, we'd be able to pay our bills. If you loved us, we'd be able to have a college savings plan. If you loved us, I'd get that promotion. I wouldn't have to work this job. I'd have the relationship that I was wanting to have so bad. If you loved us, you would have done these things. If you loved us, we wouldn't be suffering in the world. There wouldn't be hardship. We wouldn't be worried about our kids. If you loved us, life would be easy and we would be comfortable. So tell the truth, man, I'm, you know, maybe, I'm just going to say it. at some point in the Christian walk, everybody gets there at some point. At some point, you come to church, you go to church, maybe, you, you know, you do your daily devotions, but it starts feeling a lot more like you're just punching the clock than it is you're coming into the presence of God. And your heart begins to drift and you start looking for other things to fill that void, other things that give meaning and purpose to your life. And of course, they don't pan out, they don't work out, and you get more discouraged and more disgruntled. And you get to the point where you wonder if God's going to really come through on any of these promises at all. And you wonder, does the big question, is the big, the big question that floats in the back of the mind, does God really love us? Is it even possible? How can God love us when everything is so dang hard? That's how Israel feels. That's how we feel a lot. And God answers that question by saying, look, sometimes, sometimes God comes through with the temporal blessing in a crazy way. And you're like, yeah. Sometimes he'll just throw down and our spirits are refreshed and restored especially with young believers, right? But whether or not he does that, 
even when he doesn't, even in long seasons where it doesn't seem to be there, God says and answers us by saying that his love for us is not measured by these temporal blessings, by these, by these momentary comforts. His love is measured in much deeper and much more significant ways. And that is God's love, second part, God's love is measured in eternal relationships and in destinies, eternal destinies. So one thing we picked up when we started, um, when we, we had kids and we started disciplining them, I'm not sure where I picked this up or not, maybe I picked it up from Herb, Herb's like the eternal source of wisdom around, around here, right? Uh, anyways. Whenever we would discipline our kids, the, we would sit them down, we'd sit them down, and pretty much the first thing I would say to them is, I want you to know you're a good kid, and I love you just the same, even though this bad thing has happened. No matter what, whether you do good, whether you do bad, whether you mess up, whether you do great, you need to know, I want you to know that I love you just the same, that my love for you is not based on this incident or a pattern of incidents, or anything other than the fact that I'm your father, and you're my kid, and, I, and, I, and my heart is overflowing with love for you. So why do I do that? I, uh, I want them to know they can sin against me, and they do. Do they sin against us? Can I get an amen? They can damage our relationship even, but they can't break it. No matter what they do, <laughs> I'm still their father and they're still my kids and nothing they can do can change that. And so I, whenever I go to discipline them, I start out, we start out, we try to, to start out with that fact. I want them to know that first the relationship is secure so that they never mistake our discipline for punishment. They never understand the love of our discipline for the hate and the animosity of just strict punishment. And God does the same thing with Israel. God does the same thing with us. And so when Israel cries out to God and he says, they say, you haven't loved us. God's answer to them is this. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. And yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, for us to understand this, we've got to unpack a couple of things, okay? So stick with me here. Jacob and Esau were the, were the children of Isaac, who was the children of Abraham, right? You got that part of the story? Abraham was a moon-worshipping Gentile who lived in the city of Ur in Samaria, or in, uh, in Sumer, and God... He was descended of the line of Seth. He was in the Messianic line. God called him out of that city, reminded him of his fathers and the worship of God, and called him into, into Israel. I promised that through his seed, through his children, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Uh, Abraham had his son Isaac, and then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. So that's where these come from. But they became much more than just those two people, right? Jacob's name was changed to what? To Israel, and the nation of Israel came out of Jacob, through the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and then from that point forward, when, and then the church comes out of Israel at the coming of Christ, 
And it's the expansion of Israel, the true Israel, throughout the entire world, right? So Jacob becomes this symbol uh, or a, a shorthand way of talking about the people of God over all time. And Esau, Esau was Jacob's brother. Esau uh, founded, became a nation himself, the nation of Edom. And Edom was, if you look through the minor prophets, Edom is mentioned more times than any other nation as like the, the constant threat against the enemies of God's people. So that over time, Edom became symbolic or like shorthand for all the people of the world arrayed against God, for all of the enemies of the people of God, especially in the prophetic text. So when it says Edom, he doesn't mean just that country. In the same way, when he says Jacob or Israel, he doesn't mean just Israel. He means all of God's people. When he says Edom, he means all of God's enemies. They become symbolic for those things. Uh, so that's the big picture. But then focusing back in, listen to what he says, though. He says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. He doesn't say, Israel I have loved, and Edom I have hated. And that's on purpose. He wants to draw our minds to the fact that he's talking about individual people, not just nations. Uh, and the most important part of this maybe is um, that these, Jacob and Esau were not just brothers, but they were twins. <laughs> they literally were in the same womb together. Uh, you can't get any more even or any more, any more similar than that by being twins in the mother's womb. And listen to what Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, interprets this whole passage or this phrase to us by saying this in the book of Romans. The significance of what God is saying here. Paul says, though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order... That God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So what do we learn from that? We learn that God is talking about individual people are called to him, are elected by him, and not just nations or people groups or churches. And we know, we learn from that. That God calls people and chooses people not because of anything that they have done. Jacob and Esau weren't even born yet. They had no opportunity to do anything good and bad when they were select chosen. It has nothing to do, like our, our passage earlier said, nothing to do with what we do. But it is solely because of God's choice. He has called Jacob. He calls his people to himself. And so, and then... The key to understanding what's happening here is these terms love and hate. This is where like, we get tripped up. When we, we hear love and hate, what do we hear? We hear uh, modern understandings of love where we think about uh, butterflies. We think about emotional, uh, you know, um, uh, we think about... Um, <clears throat> warm fuzzy feelings or personal animosity, right? When we think of love and hate. I love this person, I hate this person. But these were 
covenantal terms. These were standardized terms that kings used in covenants of the time. When you made a covenant with another nation, or you made a covenant with a people, those terms love and hate always signified love, signified the king's responsibility to, to, uh, to rescue or to deliver, to liberate his people from foreign powers or from danger. If an enemy attacked, that king had a covenantal responsibility to come in and, and fight or, or to, to come in personally and liberate and deliver those people from the threat of that foreign power. That's what that term love meant. And the term hate was not a personal like animosity, but it, it designated a state of hostility between the enemies and the people that the king had sworn to protect and deliver. And the king's covenantal responsibility to bring desolation to any enemy that threatened his people. So now we have a lot of like cultural background and contextual background to start unpacking what is God saying here when he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Well, Paul kind of sums it all up for us adds another piece to the puzzle in Romans chapter 8, right before Romans chapter 9, what we, the passage we just quoted, Paul says this. He says, and we know, this is the most famous passage in the Bible, right? We read this all the time for the, law, for the, for the gospel passage. And Paul says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So first thing it says is what? Expect hardship. God is not, love is not going to be measured to us by the absence of hardship in this world. He is saying that is something everyone in Jesus is going to experience. You, that's our reality. And so we shouldn't be measuring our love, whether God loves us or not, based on how much hardship or loss of comfort we may experience in this life. In fact, that very well may be his good providence for us. His discipline, maybe his love for us. The things we go through, maybe God's and is God's love for us. That's the first thing we learn. But the second thing, the bigger thing is that his love for us is based on first an eternal relationship. This adds a little another piece to the puzzle. This adds the fact that God's election for us uh, came from before the foundation of the world. And, and, and note carefully, this doesn't say God elected us based on our foreseen faith. That adds to the text. What this says is that God foreknew people, not people's actions, not people's faith. To add that in there is a logical fallacy called supplying the middle term. It doesn't say that. It just says God knew, foreknew his people. And what did he do? That eternal relationship that we have with God was set from before the foundation of the world. He knew us. 
He chose us. He called us into his, he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians, uh, all over the place. When you know what to look for, it's everywhere. Alistair Begg, uh, pastor Alistair Begg, famous radio pastor. He, he goes, you know, when people bring up other passages, but what about this? What about this? He says, well, how big of a problem do you want? <laughs> How big of a problem? You know, okay, there's some issues with some other texts we need to look at to understand. But the biblical fact that God shows us in Christ from before the foundation of the world is such a major teaching that it dwarfs the other passages that speak against us. And you got to ask yourself, okay, they're a problem, but how big a problem do you want? Uh, and so it's based... Our love, God's love for us, is first, it's based on that eternal relationship that began before the foundation of the world. It's based on his covenant promise to us to deliver us from our enemies, to deliver us from the enemies of sin, of death, of hell, and of Satan. When God says he loves us, that is his covenantal promise to deliver us from the power of hell and to bring us into uh, the new creation. Jesus accomplished that. That's what Jesus' mission was, to come and live a perfectly righteous life so that we get, got credit for all of his righteousness. He died on the cross, taking our sins upon himself. He was judged for us. So that we never have to worry about being judged again. That was God fulfilling that covenant vow. He promised to do that. Thousands of years before it happened. He came and he did it. He personally sacrificed himself to destroy our enemies. And that's not just that. But his covenant promise is also, Paul says, to complete that salvation. God shows us from before the foundation of the earth... Jesus came in time and defeated sin and hell and, and the devil. And he promises to complete that mission by bringing us into the new creation, by bringing us into glory. Uh, and he promises, finally, there's a covenant promise to bring utter desolation to anyone who would attempt to stand in God's way. To anyone who would attempt to do, to stop God from completing that mission. So what does this all mean? It means that God's love for us is so much deeper and so much more significant than just affection or warm feeling or granting us our everyday wishes like a genie in a bottle. God's love for us is not like magic. Uh, it, is, it is founded in the great story of redemption that starts before the foundation of the world, includes us in it, uh, and is completed at the end of the world. And everything that God has done in between those two poles to rescue us out of this evil age. And what's most remarkable, this is what the big, big thing I want to leave you with, is what I think is so remarkable about this passage is that... Um, this is how God starts this whole oracle of Malachi, right? The church, the God's people at this time were in trouble. Uh, they, 
they were in big trouble, right? And, um, and God starts this whole oracle by reaffirming and reminding them of this eternal relationship and the eternal destiny that we have, or that they had in him and that we have in Christ. So that when his discipline comes, and trust me, it's coming <laughs> the next few chapters, he's going to get into some heavy stuff. And some of that we're going to relate to. But he starts like this. Why? Because before he ever gets into the discipline, he wants to establish to us uh, his relationship with us. That his love for us isn't a transitory thing. His love for us is based on these covenantal promises that he's made. That he's already fulfilled in his own blood. And that he promises to bring to a completion. He wants us to know above everything else uh, that we can sin against him. Uh, that we can damage our relationship with him. But we can never break it. That he is our father and we are his kids. No matter what. So that we, as this book goes on, when he brings discipline... We won't mistake that for punishment. We'll see it for the covenantal love and promises that God has given us and is giving us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. As always, uh, you are a wonderful God. Lord, your promises to us are, are more wonderful than we can imagine. And your love for us is so much deeper and so much more significant uh, than we can think of in the daily, you know, in the daily blur of anxiety and trouble. And so, Lord, we pray, I pray for all of us that in the, in the daily blur, in the struggle of life, which is real, you would help us to center our lives around these truths that we are passing through this evil age. That you have in your wisdom allowed trouble to befall us. But that you will never let that trouble overwhelm or overtake us. You have already completed and you have already secured us in the new creation. We belong to it now and you will see us through. So Lord, I pray you would help us when we find ourselves doubting whether or not you love us. When we're tempted to scream out in anger and frustration that you don't love us, that we would remember the depths of your love, the width, the height, the breadth of it, which goes beyond all understanding. And in and through that, we would be at peace with you and with the world, and that we would be lights. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's stand and respond to that and worship.